Welcome to Blender Kitchen. This week, I got most of the information from a book called Planet Taco, a global history of Mexican food by the author Jeffrey M. Pilcher. This week's topic is corn. I'll use corn and maize interchangeably because it turns out um, everywhere except for Australia, North America, and New Zealand, uh, corn means any cereal grain, um, whereas maize refers to um, what we in America consider corn. It grows on a stalk, it has ears, it's delicious, and you can make popcorn. So, let's dive in. Maize comes from the Taino word mahis. Uh, it is a cereal grain. It grows, uh, like I said, on a stalk with flowers that culminate in a corn ear. And the kernels are fruits of the corn. How cool is that? Corn is able to grow in diverse climates, uh, which really aid in the spread of corn. Corn nowadays usually grows up to eight feet in height with several ears per stalk. Now, what we know as corn today is a domesticated mutation of diosinte, which is a wild grass. Now, unlike rice, which uh, was domesticated by taking a wild strain and selectively breeding it into domestication over a period of several decades. This is just a mutation that was cultivated and encouraged to grow. There are six types of corn. Dent corn, um, which is characteristic of because of the little dents in each kernel, like little dimples. Um, out of this, we usually get starch for plastic, high fructose corn syrup, which we'll discuss a little bit later in the episode, cornmeal flour for making cornbread, uh, corn chips, tortillas, and taco shells. This corn is uh, usually prepared during a process called nixtamalization, which comes from an Aztec word uh, meaning uh, to mix with limestone. Um, we'll get into exactly what nixtamalization is in just a moment. Let's head back to what else we use dent corn with. Pozole or hominy grits are also very popular dishes made from dent corn and it's very popular in North America. Now back to nixtamalization. Nixtamalization is when corn is partially cooked and it's soaked in calcium hydroxide also known as cal or lime. Now this is just limestone dust but what happens is this allows part of the corn to be broken down and releases niacin, which is a B vitamin, so that uh, it's available for digestion, you know, by people. Um, this really uh, prevents a lack of vitamin if corn is heavily based uh, in your diet. So how this process came about is... Um, the indigenous peoples of what is today 
Mexico, and this process and technique spread throughout uh, the Americas, but really began there, came about when um, the indigenous peoples would grind corn against limestone rocks in the riverbed, um, thus um, creating this nixtamalization. Now, it's not known if this was an accidental discovery um, or purposeful, but it makes sense if you grind corn one way and everyone gets sick or is not doing as well as if you grind it in this particular place and then that's encouraged. So, where of the firm belief here that the indigenous peoples of America invented nixtamalization for preparing corn. Now, another kind of corn is called flint corn. This is also known as Indian corn or calico corn. Um, calico, just because of its multicolored appearance. Now, Indian corn, that is a troubling uh, reference to this particular type of corn. It was called that because this corn was mainly cultivated by the Great Plains tribes. And so um, those people who came into the Great Plains uninvited called it Indian corn because the people that uh, were native to this land and nowhere near India were referred to as Indians. Uh, this corn is multicolored, and it's hard as flint, which is why it's called flint corn today, uh, because it has a hardened layer uh, over each kernel, which makes it very, very tough. Another type of corn is pod corn. This is another mutant of wild maize, or theosinte. Um, in this corn, the leaves grow around each kernel, kind of giving it a very, like, feathery, fuzzy appearance. Uh, this corn is mostly grown in Central and South America. The fourth corn um, that we are aware of is flower corn. This is just corn bred mostly, uh, specifically, to make corn flour. So likewise, sweet corn is bred for eating. This corn isn't generally processed by nixtamalization. When you eat a corn of ear, uh, when you eat an ear of corn, you're usually eating sweet corn. Finally, we have popcorn, which is corn bred specifically for making popcorn. This made me so excited to know that out here, we're growing corn just to pop it and make it delicious and cover it in butter and make it unhealthy. Um, now, I was like, how do you make popcorn? How is that process made? It's really, it's so cool. You're just making little mini explosions. So popcorn is made when the moisture in the corn's endosperm, that outer shell, is converted steam and the pressure that builds up between the hole of the corn and the kernel of the corn ruptures the hole and forces the kernel to expand outside of the endosperm, becoming fluffy and amazing and crunchy and delicious. And that's how you have popcorn. Check out our Instagram at Blender Kitchen for a great little visualization of a single kernel of corn becoming popcorn. 
let's dive into the history of corn. I do want to take just a tiny little break to apologize for the nasaliness of this recording. Got a little bit of allergies going on, uh, so please bear with me. I, if for the rest of you that are also out there suffering from the beauty of fall, I commiserate with you. So, corn was first domesticated in what is modern-day southern Mexico about 10,000 years ago. It was previously thought that this uh, corn was domesticated in Teotihuacan Valley, but it's now thought that it was mostly domesticated uh, near the Balsas River Valley of central, south-central Mexico. Early corn was very small, about one inch long cobs, and only had one cob per plant. I think today we would recognize this as the product that we call baby corn, which mm, it just sounds amazing and delicious. Just the thought of these little, little baby ears of corn just growing for the picking out in the wilderness. Ah, yes. So after centuries of artificial selection, which... uh was a precursor to what we now refer to as genetic modification without the entanglement of governments trying to be greedy. Um, the corn was basically bred down to what we, well, bred up to what we know now as corn. Eight feet tall, several ears per stalk. Corn was spread to the rest of America in two waves. The first wave is more than 6,000 years ago through the Andes, and the second wave was about 2,000 years ago through the lowlands of South America. Now, the cultivation of maize really marks the first beginnings of nomadic people beginning to settle into a particular space and cultivate crops. Whereas before, it was a lot of foraging where you would come across those little cute baby ears of corn in the fields and you would pick it and, and really eat an, an omnivorous, whew, say that 10 times fast, omnivorous diet of baby corn and legumes and uh, small reptiles and small game creatures. We really associate corn with Mexico because, um, well, Mexico and Central America, because that was a staple there um, for a long time. It was domesticated there, obviously. And even today, it remains a staple in a lot of Central American and Mexican and South American cuisine. However, in South America and um, the Caribbean, potatoes and cassava really were more of a primary staple. That's not to say that corn wasn't eaten or wasn't heavily consumed, but it wasn't a primary staple as it was in Central America and Mexico. Now, in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and stumbled upon um, Hispaniola and the Caribbean and Central America and not India, uh, the conquistadores uh, came into corn. I really don't like when we were, when we insinuate that somehow they discovered this by accidentally showing up in this place and renaming a plant that had already had a name. Um, they came into corn uh, and then brought it to Europe. Now, corn was not as popular among the rich in Europe because it was thought 
that if they ate what the indigenous people of America ate, then they would become the indigenous, the uh, excuse me, the indigenous people. However, this didn't prevent them from eating corn. Polenta, delicious, wonderful, fantastic, was still eaten by um, rich and poor alike. The poor, however, really did welcome um, new variety into their diet. They were not as uppity as the rich. Um, now, Catholic missionaries to America really tried their best to eradicate maize as an indigenous staple due to its uh, pagan, quote-unquote, pagan religious associations. This failed across the board, uh, thankfully. However, it really did put maize in a lower class status, where maize was really relegated to the indigenous people and mestizo lower classes um, to eat. And it was because of a whole system. Let's get into it. Wheat became the status symbol of being rich and moneyed and landed and being able to really just afford food. Um, this was aided by founding of wheat farms that really helped institutionalize European control over native people and native bodies and native labor, um, which is a parallel that we can kind of see today where food uh, is used as a form of control uh, in that the price of a food such as fresh vegetables really dictates who is eating fresh vegetables. And a little bit later... Um, in the podcast, not this episode, but hopefully soon we're going to be talking about sustainable farming and organics and eating local and some of the barriers to that. And a lot of that is price. So this is not a new concept that just started today. Even then, you know, it was really um, creating exclusivity through the price of food. So um, different bakers within um, what is, so at this time, this land wasn't really known as Mexico, but I'm going to be referring it to Mexico because that's what the land is today, and it's just easier to give it a geographical pinpoint. So um, foreign bakers baking in in Mexico created a hierarchy of breads where wheat was the quote-unquote most pure and um, French French bread or whole wheat, um, whole wheat here meaning only wheat bread uh, was made. It was highly expensive. Really, only the rich were eating it because only the rich could afford it. And then, as the quality, as they determined quality, decreased in bread, the price decreased um, to where the Lower class bread was a mixture of wheat and corn flour, but even that was really too expensive for some of the indigenous and mestizo lower class people to even afford to eat. So they really did subsist on a diet uh, staple of corn. Now, also um, kind of pulling corn back and trying to create this exclusivity of wheat and and. Uh, relegate corn to a lower status in society, priests determined that 
you know, you couldn't use corn in communion bread because only wheat could undergo the special process of transubstantiation. Now, for those of you who aren't Catholic, um, I'm not either. I just have to have a lot of Catholic friends, and so that's how I came across this particular information. Transubstantiation is when um, the bread used in communion is transformed into the body of Christ. It's a very uh, holy moment for those who believe in it. It's uh, a particular import of importance to that religious ceremony. And so it's really just also creating this this bar of, well, you know, if you want to participate in these religious ceremonies and you want to be in this religion, you have to consume wheat and you have to leave corn and really just the culture uh, around corn, which is, wow, what a, what a way to really bring people towards your religion, you know, like, hey, don't do what you're doing or associate it with anything. Just do this. But that's, we're not a religious podcast. We're a food podcast. So we're going to move on. Um, today, uh, Hispanic food really comes from a blending of indigenous techniques and European foods that were brought about by indigenous women uh, laboring in Spanish households. For example, prior to Spanish influence, Tamales um, were kind of a little bit heavier. They weren't really mixed with animal fat or lard. And with the injection of um, pork and lard and pork products, um, that became a technique of mixing in uh, lard into the tamales to make that mixture fluffier. It wasn't clear to other people, moving, we're moving now, from Mexico and Central America and the Americas to Europe. It wasn't clear that corn was from what is today modern Mexico. You can see this because of the different names that it had. Europeans called it Turkish wheat. The Turkish people called it Egyptian grain. People in India called it Mecca corn. Uh, people on the Swahili coast called it Indian sorghum. Now, sorghum is a plant kind of like sugarcane. I think we'll discuss that as well a little later into the podcast. Podcast Probably when we discuss cakes. In China, it was called Western Barbarian Wheat. Now, these are all approximate translations of what it was called in each language. In the Congo, it was known as white man's grain. So earlier we discussed the importance of nixtamalization. However, that process did not come over to Europe with the corn itself. Most people prepared corn in the way they prepared uh, other foods that they normally ate. Because corn was more popular with the poor, it really became a staple of their diet, which led to um, a widespread prevalence of a condition called pellagra. Pellagra is a vitamin B deficiency. Um, it's very unpleasant. We're not going to get into that here, but if you want more information on pellagra, Sawbones, a medical tour of mis a marital tour, excuse me, of misguided medicine, discusses it in their episode two eighty seven. I know that I plug this a lot 
they're honestly one of my favorite podcasts and so educational and so interesting. And because food has a lot to do with nutrition and medicine, I think we're going to see more references to their podcast. But anyway, besides um, pellagra, another danger of a corn-only diet is malnutrition, which is something you think we would have kind of moved away from and cured. However, as we get into discussing um, GMO corn a little later in the episode, we'll see that indeed today this is still an issue that we battle. So, corn remains a staple in many parts of the world today. Similarly to rice, it's eaten or grown almost everywhere. In fact, there's more corn than wheat or rice grown, but most of what is grown is not for human consumption in terms of um, directly related to a vegetable product. Um, A lot of corn is grown for corn ethanol, biofuels, starch for plastics, or animal feed. Some of the corn that's grown... um, is all still for human consumption, but gets processed into other products like alcohol. What alcohol, might you ask? Oh, bourbon whiskey, made from corn. Still delicious. Cornstarch, which is a great uh, binder agent in making a lot of gluten-free foods. Corn oil um, for frying, for general use. Corn flour, um, cornmeal, tacos, tortillas, corn chips, high fructose corn syrup, which is used as a sweetener, um, and I'm sure many other applications. But corn really touches every part of our modern daily lives. So what is so bad about high fructose corn syrup? I ask myself this almost daily as someone who enjoys sweets and pops, also known as soda or soda pop in other parts of the world, for those who do not originate from the Midwest. Um, but throughout my research, it was still very unclear exactly what is so bad about high fructose corn syrup. According to the Mayo Clinic, um, the research is not clear, um, other than, yes, High fructose corn syrup contains a ton of sugar, and an excess of sugar is not good for you. So aside from what we know about sugar and excess of sugar being bad for us, there's it's not clear. So in terms of health risk, um, I wouldn't say, you know, go out and drink bottles of it because it's still not good for you, but it's no worse than eating the equivalent amount of, say, cane sugar. I think the general idea is we need to not eat so much sugar in our diets. We need to really be cutting back on that, especially, I think, in America. And I'm, you know, I'm just as guilty as the average person. I do love a good sweets. I do believe for breakfast uh, the day of this recording, I'm probably going to have a Swiss roll uh, with some tea because it's the weekend. Uh, But you know, that probably shouldn't be my daily diet or anyone's daily diet. Um, But I digress. So let's dive into genetically modified corn. Now, this is a 
controversial hot topic. You know, this is something that really gets people riled up and for good reason. I believe I mentioned it in the last episode and I will definitely mention it here. Genetically modified foods have the potential to solve a lot of problems. Uh, problems in terms of growing enough food to feed people, in terms of transporting foods. Um, you know, it's it's they have the potential for to really be a boon to everyday life. You know, but the problem comes in with red tape and bureaucratics and honestly greed. So before we get into that, let's talk about what GMO corn is being grown today. In the United States and Canada, GMO corn has been being grown since 1997, and there are two main types, insect-resistant and herbicide-resistant. Now, because because corn is grown almost everywhere, like um, rice, there are many countries that produce both strains of GMO corn, both the insect resistant and herbicide resistant. We're just going to run through a quick list in case you want to know if your country produces this corn. Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, Colombia, the European Union, Honduras, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, the Philippines, South Africa, Taiwan, and of course, the United States. Some countries only grow the insect-resistant strain of GMO corn, and those countries are Chile, Egypt, and Switzerland. And some countries only grow the herbicide-tolerant GMO corn, and that's El Salvador, the Russian Federation, Singapore, and Thailand. Now, let's get into the unpleasantness of genetically modified corn. Now, in a perfect world, we would grow this corn and countries that have issues with corn blight could grow corn and feed people and not have to worry about um, losing entire crops to insects or um, fungi. But unfortunately, greed really gets in the way. So... Monsanto. Monsanto is an agricultural company that really focuses on producing bacteria-resistant, herbicide-resistant, insect-resistant, you know, strains of food, crops to be grown um, to benefit people. You know, there's a lot of great things that come out of it. More crops from a single seed. Crops that last longer, crops that survive droughts, crops that survive torrential downpours. However, in comes the usual human motive, greed. And the problem with this is the great part of genetically modified foods is that they grow well. That's what they're designed to do. And when you grow that plant in the outdoors and they're cross-pollinated by wind and um, rain, you know, it rains. It's not just um, watered by human hands. And bees, you know, common birds feast on them and drop the seeds elsewhere. You're going to have those crops growing not where they were originally planted. And Monsanto 
is rigorous about protecting copyright to the point where if it's discovered through no fault of a neighbor's that they have Monsanto genetically modified corn growing in their fields, Monsanto will do everything in their power to prosecute that farmer and really just make it difficult or impossible for the farmer to continue being a farmer due to no fault of their own. You know, birds are going to eat corn and drop it elsewhere. And because genetically modified corn grows so well, it's going to quickly take over that field. It's going to breed and cross-pollinate with other unmodified corn to create new breeds and, and really, you know, propagate itself <laughs> as it was designed to do. Um, so that's that's the problem, is individual companies um, taking copyright over food. And then that begs a bigger question, should we be copywriting food? I personally think that it should be a very limited copyright, you know, because um, we do have to take into account um, what motivates people to really do things. And we do want that innovation there, you know, but I think part of what would really ease the problem of greed would be to limit how long you could copyright these seeds for, you know, and limit the damages awarded uh, due to accidental cross-pollination or accidental contamination of non-genetically modified fields with genetically modified grain or seeds. Um, but that's a different podcast. Um, you know, it's it's difficult because these products do have the potential to help a lot of people. And I don't think the answer is pulling the product off the market entirely um, because it's it's a odd it's an odd thing, you know, it's an odd situation we're in where this product is helping people. It's you know, Growing more food is important. You know, I think sometimes if you live in a country where you don't really have a food shortage, it's easy to say, well, we don't really need more of that particular food. You know, or like we should be encouraging the growth of other foods. Um, But I do think that at the heart of many genetically modified food issues um, is greed. You know, there's a... People are arguing for the health risk, you know, what what will this do long term? And I think that is something that we should study and look into. But I think for the most part, if you're gently modifying foods to increase productivity and longevity, that's something that we've been doing since the domestication of corn and the domestication of rice. And I don't think that's something we should be worried about. I think um, definitely we should be doing long-term studies to to figure it out and um, life must go on while those studies are being conducted. And, but I think the biggest challenge we really have is human greed. And that's something that we can, uh, put a salve on or solve. That is a solvable problem. Let's move into something much more lighthearted. So last week, I did really truly enjoy looking up different preparations of rice and 
highlighting those, but I didn't think that they got really their due time in the spotlight, uh, just to be such widely consumed food. So going forward, we're really going to focus on one preparation of corn and, uh, well, or that food, you know, so that we can really get a sense of a different way to prepare it. This week, we're going to focus on tamales, which honestly are one of my favorite foods. Tamales are prepared differently depending on where you're from. Um, I know that Belizean tamales um, tend to be made using banana leaves and uh, stewed meat, um, but the tamales we're going to discuss today use corn husk and ground meat. So let's dive in. I got this recipe for tamales from Food Republic. Uh, they have a great bunch of recipes over there. Um, it's an excellent blog, really detailed into their preparation. And if you would like to see a written, uh, written version, uh, please head over to the link in our bio on blunderkitchen.com or the link we've retweeted on uh, via our Twitter at Blunder Kitchen. That's K T C H N Pod. Well, on Twitter. Um, that's a little difficult to keep track of, so we'll include the link to the social media in the show notes. So uh, let's dive in. You'll need 30 dried corn husk, one cup of pork lard or Crisco, or two cups of vegetable oil. If you use vegetable oil, when it calls for this part of the recipe, you will add it in all at once. Three cups of tamal flour or mesa, two cups of hot but not boiling water, one teaspoon of fine or two teaspoons of kosher salt, two-thirds cup vegetable oil, this, if you're substituting vegetable oil for pork lard, this is in addition to the two cups of vegetable oil. Five cups of filling. Now your filling is really up to you. You can use pork, chicken, spinach, and mushroom. Uh, really flavor it how you would like to. Uh, cook it ahead of time and set it to cool. Soak the corn husk in cold water for 20 minutes. While the corn husk are soaking, beat the lard until it is fluffy in a large bowl. Mix tamale flour, water, and salt with your hands in another large bowl until uniform dough is formed. Add half of the dough to the lard mixture and beat to combine. If you are using vegetable oil, Add all of the dough and all of the vegetable oil together and beat to combine. If you're using Crisco or pork lard, add the vegetable oil and remaining dough to the lard mixture and beat until the texture of fluffy frosting. Or if a tablespoon of the mixture floats in a glass of water. Season with additional salt. 
The mixture should be very salty because a lot of the salt will leach during the steaming process. Drain the corn husk. Add one third cup of batter onto the concave side of the corn husk. Spread the batter to flatten evenly. You want to make a rough rectangle. Place two tablespoons of filling in the middle of the batter. Fold over the husk and double the pointed bottom in half. Repeat with the remaining corn husk. Fit all of your tamales with the open ends up in a pasta steamer basket. Fill a sauce, uh, excuse me, fill a large pot with one inch of water and put a coin in the bottom of the pot. When the coin begins to jingle, you'll know that you want to add more water to the pot. Add the, the steamer basket of tamales to the pot and cover with additional corn husk. On top of the corn husk, place a plastic shopping bag. On top of that, place a damp cloth. And then finally, the pot lid. This will allow all of the moisture to remain in the pot and will aid in the steaming of your tamales. Bring the, the water to a boil and steam for 45 to 50 minutes. If you would like to see a great video of tamales being made from start to finish on the new reboot of Queer Eye on Netflix in season one, episode four, AJ and his stepmom Hadi, or Hadi, not quite sure, I do apologize. Anyway, they and Anthony sit down in the kitchen and make tamales. It's really a heartwarming time. It's a fantastic show, and it's a great uh, glimpse into how making your tamales looks. I know that uh, the recipe sounds a little bit complicated, but if you head on over to Food Republic, where I got this recipe, um, they do include pictures, and it will be much easier to kind of visualize how this recipe goes down. Thanks for tuning in to today's corn episode. It's been wonderful hanging with you guys. I can't wait to see you again next week on our episode featuring, wait for it, tacos. So if you would like to follow us on social media, we've kind of got everything together now. That's Blunder Kitchen on Instagram and at Blunder K. T-C-H-N pod on Twitter. See you next time.